One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Richard Deming, author of This Exquisite Loneliness. I guess I am of the school that we never fully escape a sense of, you know, loneliness or aloneness. You have moments of connection and they can be ongoing moments of connection. But I think that there's a kind of existential position that we're all in of of being separate from everybody at all times. We'll be back with Richard Deming after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is how did we get to 9,000 hours is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear 
directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My guest today is poet, art critic, and theorist Richard Deming. His collection of poems, Let's Not Call It Consequence, received the 2009 Norma Farber Award from the Poetry Society of America. His other titles include The Poetry Collection Day for Night, Listening on All Sides, and Art of the Ordinary. He is the Director of Creative Writing at Yale University. His new nonfiction book is called This Exquisite Loneliness, What Loners, Outcasts, and the Misunderstood Can Teach Us About Creativity. In the book, Deming interrogates loneliness, both personal and existential, by sharing his own experiences and those of six groundbreaking figures. Through the lens of loneliness, he is navigating how artists and intellectuals lived with it, created with it, and even used it to fuel their work. The people he profiled include psychoanalyst Melanie Klein, writer Zora Neale Hurston, essayist Walter Benjamin, photographer Walker Evans, painter Egon Sheila, and filmmaker Rod Serling. We began with Richard Deming explaining the meaning of exquisite loneliness. Exquisite loneliness is um, a kind of self-aware, self-conscious understanding of being alone which is that I know that this is something that I'm I'm participating in. This is a condition that's happening to me. And instead of just sort of living in that space, trying to trying to look at it and trying to see, okay, well, this means that that if loneliness at its core is a kind of discrepancy between what 
our need for social connection, our intimacy is, and what we believe we have, then that raises the question of, well, what are what are my needs? What are my hopes? What are my expectations in terms of connecting to other people? And how do I how do I think about that? And and how do I articulate it to myself so that I can somehow work with that? Um, and that was something that I think is is important because lonely. One of the there's some problems that come along with loneliness that have a lot to do with it, the social stigma that's attached to it. And a lot of people have difficulty even recognizing that they are lonely um, or they can recognize it, but have tremendous difficulty um, admitting to it or confessing it because so often um, in our society, it the loneliness is seen to be the fault of the person who feels alone. Well, why don't you just go out and meet people or, you know, maybe it's something that you're doing and which isn't necessarily the case. You can have, you know, tremendous friendships and and a good marriage or a good partnership and still feel that that loneliness. And so I felt like if we could start to look at at people who acknowledged it in their lives and tried to recognize its patterns and how they interacted with people or how they interacted with the world, then we can, we can learn from that and, and articulate it to ourselves. And, you know, there's a kind of psychoanalytic core to it, which is that, you know, if we examine our own loneliness, we, we know ourselves better. And so I wanted to begin with thinking about mine, um, and it's this, I mean, it's funny when you read um, about loneliness, um, how often even, you know, there's this really, you know, great uh, sociologist who writing about loneliness. And it's very academic, very, you know, social sciences, very objective. And in the midst of this, he suddenly shifts and says, well, basically everyone who writes about loneliness at some point has to own their own loneliness and here's mine. And then it goes back to this very academic, objective, scientific approach. And, and that was tremendously important to me because it, it drove home that sense of, okay, I, I can't write about this as an outsider. I need to write from my own perspective. So I wanted to begin there. I wanted to begin with some of the, the you know, really talking about the catalyst moment, because it also drew together things like my own history of substance abuse when I was younger and, you know, some of my own problems with depression. Um, but by the end, like, it, it, you know, that could, it felt a little like, you know, this could be a closed loop and I need to look at other people's loneliness once I've put mine out there. And then I could weave that in my loneliness and others. And, and I think that ultimately that's something that's important. You know, if I have a hope for the book, it's this deep sense that, you know, none of us are really alone in our loneliness and that it is, in fact, a really constituent part of being human is feeling this loneliness and wanting to overcome it. Like that's what propels us to to know other people. That propels us to be intimate, to 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 give ourselves to other people and have them give themselves to us. And which is why I began with the first chapter is about Melanie Klein, the the you know pioneering psychoanalyst who 
wrote this really masterful essay about loneliness. Did you, have you ever thought about what the opposite of loneliness is? Uh, <laughs> I mean, if I ever experience it, I'll let you know. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I mean, you know, I think that there's a, yeah, deep sense of connection, of a sense of belonging, a sense of fully enmeshed and entangled with other people. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's kind of ongoing. I mean, I I guess I am of the school that we never fully escape a sense of, you know, loneliness or aloneness. You have moments of connection and they can be ongoing moments of connection. But I think that there's a kind of existential position that we're all in of, of being separate from everybody at all times. I mean, I have been lonely my whole life and own it and say it and I can totally relate. And I, I feel like for me, the opposite it, it isn't really connection. I mean, I think connection like alleviates it. It's like something that helps it. But I think for me, I would say maybe it's like flow state. Okay. What do you mean by that? I think when you're like in a flow state and you're, and I'm thinking about it in creativity, like when you're fulfilling your highest purpose, I think maybe that alleviates the loneliness. And I think that it can take so long to figure out like what you're really good at. And it can happen in many different realms. You could be in a flow state hiking in Moab one day, or I could be in a flow state making a macrame or mm -hmm. writing. And that is where I feel like I lose myself. Like I'm not conscious of my separation from m me and my body and my spirit to the rest of the universe and in some other place of psychic pain, but that I'm, I'm just so in the present. I don't, mm -hmm. does that make sense? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, I mean, that's a kind of deep solitude. And I, I talk a little bit about this about in the book as well, that there was this period of time that I was staying in a cabin in the southern tier of New York. And it was a seven, I had no car, no phone. This was before internet and cell phones. And it was a seven mile walk to town. I was by myself. There was no running water. And I was sitting in meditation um, every day as well. And all of this was because I was at the time I was in a band and we were about to go on tour. And so I needed to be really right with myself. And I would meditate. And and what would be astonishing sometimes is that I would be swear it was five minutes and then I would get up from a session and it would be two hours later. And I would like, you know, checking, you know, checking all the time. Something happened. I mean, there's no way that was two hours. That was five minutes, you know, like that kind of restorative generative possibilities of solitude are important and and I don't want to like lose also that that part of of being alone which is a kind of conscious choice to to be alone and to separate from the the noise and the demands of of life and absolutely restorative and necessary and and powerful the the thing I think about um about loneliness is that well solitude is often chosen 
you know, we we choose to go to a cabin, we choose to go hiking, as you were talking about, whereas loneliness happens to us. And that's why it's, I think, in some ways, really, you know, so hard to grapple with, because it seeks us out, we don't seek it out. Yeah, I wonder, too, this word just came to my mind of like oblivion, that there could be maybe positive states of oblivion and, and negative ones like you you are talking in your introduction about your drinking and your substance abuse, which is a type of oblivion. So you don't have to think about yourself. But I wonder also if when you were meditating, it was like a positive oblivion where you were outside of yourself or united, like you weren't focused on the boundaries or something. Yeah, I mean, I think that stuff is is powerful for sure and i think that's like that when i was really serious about it like about meditation and i don't know i would love to hear your experience on these things too but that i felt more like a you know a medium that things passed through and you don't hold on to any of those things and it's just you're kind of a conduit for something larger which is is a kind of profound thing. But I think that like, again, the difference is, is that that's still a kind of experience, like, you you still feel it moving through you, or I did. And whereas like, blackout drinking, you, I wanted simply to not exist, like, you know, and in some ways, that's kind of it's, that's the reverse a perverted version of the meditation in which I would be gone for two days. And then suddenly I'm, I appear somewhere and have no idea where I am or how I got there. Um, which is not the same sort of <laughs> feeling as I had when I was meditating. I was like, Oh, that was two hours. I thought it was five minutes when, you know, the blackout drinking. Oh, that, that was, that was two days and I'm in a different country. Um, yeah, that's a lot less. Um, and, and then there's nothing, there is no memory of that. Whereas the, you know, in some ways the, the, for me and my experiences with, with meditation, like you, I wanted to carry that feeling of being, permeable into my daily life I, I you know that was that was good that was useful unlike the 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 other kinds in which yeah I, like I said I wanted to just not exist yeah the ends of what you seek are quite different yeah for sure yeah yeah I also felt like and we can talk more specifically because most of the people that you were profiling or all of them were, were really artists of some form, whether their art was television or writing or photography or painting or even psychoanalysis. I think that there was something through the act of their creativity that was on parallel or, or maybe in perpendicular to their loneliness to manifest. I mean, I wonder if like Egon Sheila if when he was painting, what he felt like inside? I mean, who can ultimately say? I mean, I think that he, you know, talked very much about being a kind of romantic, tortured artist. And so that, you know, it wasn't necessarily a kind of transcendent experience as it would be with, say, Ralph Waldo Emerson or Walt Whitman or, you know, the 19th century writers who are really important to me. 
but I think Sheila was, you know, talked a lot about being much more tortured and that the the expression um, was his way of locating himself in, in, in kind of dialogue with the things and the people that he was seeing and that there's this vulnerability, a kind of, you know, um, laying bare of, of how he saw people and saw the world. And he did that by making them showing, often showing people at their most vulnerable and open and, uh, and embodied, which I think is, you know, a powerful, but I mean, at the same time, yeah, I mean, there's a way that when you're, for instance, drawing, and he did a lot of drawing that that like that is the the hand and the eye just become you kind of united um and so that there is maybe an emptying out of the self or walker evans and i talk a, a lot about the subway photographs that he took and and he you know rode the subway and had a, a camera hidden in his coat and he would take these pictures that are just astonishing um and uh but the you know he didn't engage with the people he himself kept himself separate and lonely and alone and so we see that separation but i think that you know with a lot of these folks there there's a kind of oh, desire to show the act of expression and so that like even if we look at walker evans's subway photographs which are sort of un unalloyed a little rawer than he normally might have been we stand in the place that he was or we sit in the place that he was on the subway so in essence we kind of become him or with Sheila we become Sheila looking at the at the thing so yeah I mean I think that you know and Zora Neale Hurston's a different a, a different kind of situation and in some ways so is a Serling but yeah I think all of them uh, I think they were they were people who strike me as interested in the struggle of expression and that's what you know kind of weirdly unites them even though they're very otherwise very different yeah and I think like all of these people too there's I think there's two things going on and you talk about this in the book that you know, there's this existential loneliness that we have that we're separated from our mother at birth. We, you know, essentially live in our own unique body. Like we are going through the world alone. And then there's also like the external conditions that many of these people were seeking acceptance or approval or that they were fighting the status quo or they were castigated in some way or excluded by their race, by their religion, um, by their sexuality, um, that, that, that they couldn't be who they were. So I think they were, had, you know, things going on on both sides that, you know, we're human. So we have that. And then they also had these external circumstances, which we can't live life without you know the book opens in your external circumstances and you're you're in rochester new york trying to get sober i was thinking about this i don't know mitty let me know if this is helpful i was i was thinking about this the other day i was listening to a um or watching a, a very short um interview with boy george and about bowie 
of uh, David Bowie. And, and they asked him, you know, what is, what did David Bowie mean to you? And he said that, you know, here he was growing up in a suburban England. And he said, you know, I felt like I was wrestling with my identity and I was, you know, I was a, a, you know, adolescent. And suddenly I heard Bowie and through the walls of my brother's bedroom. And he said, and Boy George said, I suddenly felt like if, if Bowie existed, then I'm not alone. And that he, he was like, he, you know, Bowie gave me all this kinds of permission to think about identity and who I, you know, who I am. Um, uh, and then, you know, he becomes Boy George. And, um, which is fascinating to me because Bowie was really important to me. I'm younger than Boy George and I'm not at all like Boy George in a lot of ways, but also had a similar experience that like, oh, this also, um, this is, this matters to me that, that Bowie, who was very consistently insistent about loneliness and alienation being part of his dynamic, that that was something that could speak in different ways to people, but in the same way, very, very, very powerfully. And what then is interesting to me too, is this is well after, you know, I finished the book. I mean, it was just a couple of weeks ago that I heard this, that you know, boy George, young, young boy George, I can't remember George's last real last name, but he hears it as an adolescent and then becomes boy George and, you know, has, you know, writes music and becomes this big, you know, icon of the eighties and so on. And, and so then other people hear his music and I hear Bowie and I write a book about, you know, I go on to write a book about loneliness and, you know, that's really what that and Bowie himself is is creating music and and performing out of his loneliness. And so that's kind of like the ideal, I, I think, the economy of this for me that like you express it in such a way that it that it other people feel a kind of recognition, acknowledgement and a per permission to do it as well. I think it's really powerful. It's kind of like, you know, you know, you begin by singing along with the car radio and then you write a song and then you perform that. Like that's the chain um, of of expression in which you can, like I said, recognize others and recognize yourself. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash first draft writers. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. 
I think that there is this element in what you're saying is that we want to be seen and and you talk about that too in your book in certain ways that we just want to be seen for who we are and we want to be who we are and that probably when boy George heard Bowie or maybe when you heard Bowie there was something that even though there was like no connection like personal connection you felt seen maybe it was like okay to be seen or that he was like you and also seen and that that's probably also part of what alleviates loneliness and and that speaks to your connection because I I don't think that connection isn't the opposite but it's I think everything whether it's flow state or connection the problem with loneliness is that it's um it's chronic yeah and that these things can come and ebb and flow but for most people if we're being honest it is a condition yeah for sure for sure and that's so then how do we you know how do we respond to it how do we how do we make something out of that was the question that i got really fascinated with yeah i have this sense that these six people burned too bright because Obviously, they've all died. <laughs> it's going to yeah. happen to all of us. But like yeah. Zora, Neil Hurston was alone and kind of cast out by the end. Yeah. She had her moment of fame and then she lost it. And Rod Serling died at 50 from a heart attack. And Walter Benjamin was young and committed suicide so far from home. And Walker Evans, I think he was an alcoholic and yeah. um, also died fairly young. And Egon, you know, she let died in this from the influenza he was super young he didn't even get to really have his life yet and so I had this sense that they that they did like they had this moment of burning so bright but not that loneliness killed them but it was something that they sadly had in common yeah I mean that was I think you know important to me is to not give a false sense that that loneliness is curable. Like, you know, if we kind of do think it's an existential condition and that we, we overcome it and then come back to it and overcome it and come back to it. You know, I, I didn't want to give a sense that, that, yeah, there's the, you know, we, we solve the problem of it or that anybody has really solved the problem of it. I mean, that's because it had begun for me with the sense of stakes and, you know, that that people's lives are on the line. Yeah, you find ways to to deal with it. I mean, it's the same way with like, I think with depression, you don't so much cure depression as, as manage it or substance abuse is not like, you know, suddenly it's gone. You work with it and you work through it and you you try to outrun it and all of those things. And so that like these people who were kind of in most the most extremists of these feelings and by nature of their all being, you know, in some ways, you know, geniuses, like they felt it and expressed it more profoundly than so many of us. But it becomes not like the dis- distinction. It becomes the like mode for for recognizing it yeah so i mean that was really what i was trying to to do is that what's the saying it's a good life if you don't weaken i mean that 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 these 
folks all believed in the stakes of of loneliness and tried to um and in a lot of ways successfully meaningfully poignantly more poignantly because they never solved it give us a way of thinking about how to be vulnerable and how to develop empathy for ourselves and for other people i'm curious if it even is solvable like it's just part of this human life and something that you say in many of your essays in different ways is that there's also a way in which we court it that you know loneliness is increasing isolation and feelings of isolation with the longing for greater connection even as we fight the longing for greater connection and that we resent and need loneliness at the same time. That was in the pair in the part about Benjamin. So there's also something different than solitude where at least I read this, maybe I'm incorrect where there's also something where maybe we, we want it, we want to cure it, but then there's a little piece of it that we need. Oh yeah, for sure. So Benjamin is really interesting because that that really is part of that resentment that he had. And I think this is absolutely true of Zora Neale Hurston. In some ways more true of Zora Neale Hurston. But like but this idea that like if what prompts me to create is this loneliness and this need to connect with others, then at some level that's how I know myself. I create because of that need. And in that creation, I recognize who I am, or I become who I am. But that ultimately, you know, leads us back to at some level needing that, that loneliness. And, you know, people like um, John Cassiopo, who was a, uh, you know, neurologist, neurobiologist, neuroscientist, you know, really made the case that, the loneliness is also like just a natural drive, like, like hunger. And so like, if we line that up and yeah, sometimes it's frustrating that I eat because I'm hungry and I don't like that. I have to be hungry, but it gets you to eat or otherwise you wouldn't eat. And so that's, you know, and that's a human need. And so with a lot of these writers and artists and maybe myself, like it would be nice to not feel that need to be relieved from it but to be relieved from it is to be then um, to lose the access to the thing that is my way of being in the world. So it is this sort of complicated loop. And, and I, yeah, definitely sometimes it's really, I mean, for writers, I think in general, like there is so much sense of, or an artist too. Any, I mean, really anyone involved in the arts is that there's so much rejection tied to it. And you kind of, you know, like even the most successful people will talk about, there's a lot more no's than yeses. And, and, you know, wouldn't it be nice to just be able to walk away from that? Yeah, but also there is this need that says, okay, I ha- but I have to create, I need to, I need to shoot that flare up for the the passing airplanes to see me. Um, and, uh so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a complicated situation to be in. Um, yeah, but I think it's also no matter what, where we are. So many people who listen to this podcast are creatives. Maybe they're writers sure. or editors. 
I mean, what what would you want them to walk away with in terms of creativity and your book? I think that this is pretty true, certainly true of me, is that, you know, like if you give a reading or, or something and someone says, talk to you later, or they call you or they email you and say, yeah, I really love that. It made me go home and write. Like, that's it. Like that, like you can, you could say, oh, you're great. All those things. That's really nice. But the much more powerful for me sense of of doing something is that someone says, oh, I went home and, and felt the need to create. I'm just a catalyst. And, and I think that that would be, that's partly why I really loved the, the thing about Boy George is that, you know, he said, oh, I, you know, love Bowie so much that I, you know, you know, became a musician. So like if somebody reads the book and says, I want to think about my loneliness. I want to write from that. I want to be create conditions of vulnerability and intimacy in the world and and value and validate it through the art. You know, I think in a time where we're kind of otherwise and almost at all times, vulnerability and intimacy is is kind of getting beat up lately. And like, you know, we're not alone in our loneliness. And that creativity, creating things is this path to creating possibilities of discussion. That to me is it. Like that, there you go. Like, uh, you know, I'm happy for the book to be a ladder for someone to climb to their own place of making something. Um, And like, like I said, given permission by these other people uh, the way that I was. Can you read a passage from an author that influences you as a writer? Yeah, so I can I can read. And I, I, I love the question. And it's also like, you must get this all the time, Mitzi. Like, this is the most impossible question. So I settled, I forced myself to settle on this passage, which is the very end of um, Sonny's Blues by James Baldwin. Just one of the great, great short stories. And... In fact, I was just talking about it with a class yesterday, and I think that everything I'm I'm someone who really responds to a kind of heightened, almost biblical language of of kind of intensity and ambition and like, you know, imaginative ambition. And it builds to this like there is for me no better ending than the last couple sentences. So this is the last two paragraphs of Sonny's Blues. Then they all gathered around Sonny and Sonny played. Every now and again, one of them seemed to say, Amen. Sonny's fingers filled the air with life, his life. But that life contained so many others. And Sonny went all the way back. He really began with the spare, flat statement of the opening phrase of the song. Then he began to make it his. It was very beautiful because it wasn't hurried and it was no longer a lament. I seemed to hear with what burning he had made it his, with what burning we had yet to make it ours, how we could cease lamenting. Freedom lurked around us, and I understood at last that he could help us to be free if we would listen, that he would never be free until we did. Yet there was no battle in his face now. I heard what he had gone through and would continue to go through until he came to rest in earth. He had made it his, that long line of which we knew only mama and daddy. And he was giving it back as everything must be given back so that passing through death, it can live forever. 
I saw my mother's face again and felt for the first time how the stones of the road she had walked on must have bruised her feet. I saw the moonlit road where my father's brother died, and it brought something else back to me and carried me past it. I saw my little girl again and felt Isabel's tears again, and I felt my own tears begin to rise. And I was yet aware that this was only a moment that the world waited outside as hungry as a tiger, and that trouble stretched above us longer than the sky. Then it was over. Creole and Sonny let out their breath, both soaking wet and grinning. There was a lot of applause, and some of it was real. In the dark, the girl came by, and I asked her to take drinks to the bandstand. There was a long pause while they talked up there in the indigo light, and after a while, I saw the girl put a scotch and milk on top of the piano for Sonny. He didn't seem to notice it, but just before they started playing again, he sipped from it and looked toward me and nodded. Then he put it back on top of the piano. For me then, as they began to play again, it glowed and shook above my brother's hood head like the very cup of trembling. Do you want to share more about that? I mean, I think it was funny as I was reading through, I was like, oh, wow, that's, you know, like all the things I was just talking about are kind of in there. Freedom lurked around us and I understood at last that he could help us to be free. If we would listen, then he would never be, that he would never be free until we did, you know, and it's this moment of Sonny playing piano. Sonny is um, the brother of the, of the narrator and he has been fighting with heroin and has gone to jail and they have this very fraught family life. And the narrator who's an algebra teacher in high school is watching his brother um not only watching his brother as his brother but watching his brother enact art in front of him and that it's this freeing and expansive and expanding and 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 that art in its way is kind of a redemptive move but it's a, a kind of tentative like the the cup of of trembling above his head the transformation of the drink into something from something common um into something you know um really powerfully evocative like all of it for me is in is there in the language just keeps building and building and building and yet it's still very grounded in a very real thing like i just don't know i mean there's there's kind of nobody better or smarter than james baldwin and he's someone who just you know all of the time i think he's someone who as an essayist and as a, a fiction writer absolutely says at in every turn this is real you better make it worth our time and like i think that's for me i i i really respond and and acts that himself like you know leaves it all out on the field all so and and i just don't like that's the the distillation um and it's all there and it's all just amazingly powerful and i just comes back to me all that time, all the time, that, that cup of trembling. And I mean, some of it is maybe because I was a jazz musician. I was a percussionist, not a piano player, but still that sense of creating and, and, and I guess disappearing into the work. Yeah. It's all there. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed from the first draft or something you liked. I like this question a lot. Uh, so I, this is not something I love. This is something that I thought was tricky 
Um, and I'll I'll read it and then I'll talk about why it was tricky. And this is from the introduction. I did not know, of course, how could I, that during those very same years, as I was trying to grab a hold of my life before it was lost altogether, a young man from the outskirts of Rochester, somebody who had once frequented that very same art house cinema before I hit town, would be fighting through his own addictions while a student at NYU. Not classically handsome, but compelling nonetheless because of his innate ability to convey a crushing vulnerability, he would eventually be called frequently the greatest actor of his generation. I didn't know then either that one day, years and years later, I would watch a film in that very same theater starring this man, Philip Seymour Hoffman, that would be the saddest movie I have ever seen. How could I know then that a little while later, I would be asked to write an essay about this film, Synecdoche, New York, and that Hoffman would die of an overdose while I was in the middle of drafting the piece. He died even as I was wrapping my head around why his movie had moved me so deeply about why and how Hoffman had become the Marlon Brando of loneliness. You know, I don't know if it's successful, but I like um, one thing that I kind of like is like probably like that there's a technical problem there. Uh, or a technical challenge, which is I'm trying to kind of, um, well, we're sort of going back, Mitzi, to what we were talking about at the beginning, that sort of like flow state. Um, and I, there's something about art that can help us experience the simultaneity of time. You know, we can be 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and in this moment all at once, like really simultaneously. and. So I was trying to, and I think that that's really tricky to convey that overlapping of time. So I was trying to think about like, so the the, the trick there, the challenge there was um, how to think about Hoffman being a kid, me being a kid, you know, you know, college kid, then seeing the hit this, then years later seeing this movie in the same city where I had first heard his name as like, oh, there was this guy in high school that was an amazing actor. But I'm also thinking about the essay, writing the essay about this movie that he was in. And I'm writing about it in the present of the book in which I'm past writing that essay and, and learning about his death. So it's these all of these time frames kind of simultaneously happening that um that i think is how we certainly how i sometimes emotionally experience the world but it's really tricky like it's a real challenge to like get that and convey it and have it be clear um but that's what i wanted to and that's like a catalytic moment is is when all of that comes together um and you know that's kind of what it had been for me and i was really trying to to and it took, I, I don't know, I felt like it took forever to kind of feel like it was fluid and unforced and yet give some sense of that being unstuck in time. Where do you write? In a fugue state? <laughs> it's a good question. And it's this one, I have a better sense of it here in my study, there and in bed, lying on top of the covers in the afternoon, those two places. But I did have a lot of writer friends that listen to you. So I, you know, I will also throw this out. One thing that's always kind of part of my process is that I tend to like to write in in quiet or with music playing. 
However, there's always a moment uh, where I think it's important to to take that and go read it in a loud place, like like a coffee shop or something, because what happens is that I I kind of write in I write in that space and it works in that space, but I don't know that it works in other spaces. And so, like if I if I take it into like the opposite place. Um, and it still holds up or there are things that I'm like, oh, it's not cutting through this noise. I need to make this sentence a little more dynamic. Um, and I tell people like, you know, students, I say, do the ops. Like if you're somebody who writes in a coffee shop, that's great. That's great. But go read a draft when it's super quiet and like, does it work in that space? If you get to the point where they kind of work, they may work differently, but it works in both places, then you then I think, okay, you're probably where it needs to be. That's the text can, can hold its own, whatever the environment. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I walk around here. I live near right on the Long Island Sound. So we'll walk along the water. I run and I go to the gym and lift weights. And so I like to be, you know, pretty much in my, really in my body. Because I think, you know, like a lot of writers, it's hard to get away from thinking about writing or writing in your head. And so like if I'm running with a podcast playing, I'm less likely to be chewing over and over a, a sentence or something. And it just gives me that break so that when I come back, I feel some distance from it and, and can put it down for a while. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? It depends on the piece. You know, sometimes it's my beloved. She's a poet and she's a very clear writer herself. And so um, sometimes it's her. Sometimes it's friends from as far back as graduate school. Sometimes um, there are passages uh, from this that a friend of mine from undergrad days, who's a travel writer, He's in the very beginning and at the end, Joshua. I show it to him, particularly he's really good with place. And also he, he was good for checking my memory on things. So it kind of depends, but but really it's always somebody that I trust and have known for a while. And that way I have a good sense of when to, and sometimes it's a good time. You, you I find I show people something because I think they will support it and and help build on the strengths and sometimes i show it to people who i know it's not their thing and i want to know if it's not their thing like if it's somebody not somebody's thing how are they going to experience it and can i adjust for that or do i need to so it, it kind of depends on that but yes it's always like my my beloved or this close you know uh number of people who themselves don't know each other but have been with me for years how have you dealt with rejection? Poorly. Uh, <laughs> I remember hearing about the poet William Stafford that he always had the next envelope ready to send out with poems so that the minute he got a rejection, like he didn't think about it. He just put the next envelope in the mail and just like you keep going. And I think that some of that is sometimes it's easier and sometimes it's harder, but like kind of feeling like it's not it, what it what it is for me is about the process of making and so kind of 
just keep pushing, pushing out and like be working on the next thing. So if the rejection is coming, you're, you're already excited about the next thing that you're doing anyway. And so just kind of pushing on. And also this by Ralph Waldo Emerson is something that is just taped to my wall. Um, and it is something that I take deep. In, and I think this is true for any artist. He says poet, but he means really anyone who creates. And he said, doubt not, O poet, but persist. Say, it is in me and shell out. Stand there, balked and dumb, stuttering and stammering, hissed and hooted, stand and strive, until at last rage draw out of thee that dream power which every night shows thee is thine own, a power transcending all limit and privacy, and by virtue of which a man is the conductor of the whole river of electricity. I mean, I think that's it. Like, you know, you, if you get the rejection, it is in me and shell out. And like, that's it. Like you just keep going. I mean, what matters most to me is not, is nothing more than like, I want in the end them to say, you know, whatever else he was that Deming had heart. And like, I just like, that's it. Like you just keep going. And, you know, the most powerful warrior is the one with the fullest heart and just keep and keep going. And like I said, that doesn't mean it's always easy. Um, and sometimes you have to look at that doubt not a poet, but persist and have somebody else saying it to you. But I think ultimately, it's just staying in motion. And what is your favorite word? <laughs> it's great. Well, uh, is it pretentious to say that in uh, French, my favorite, I I speak virtually no French, but my favorite word is histoire, um, you know, history or story, um, which I I think, I don't just the sound of it, all of it, it just feels, it feels right for whatever reason. I'm, I think in some past life, it was somehow important to me. Uh, and I think in, in English, I love the word sublime. Um, I love the sound. I love the meaning, all of it. So those two. Well, thank you so much. I so appreciate you taking the time and sharing your thoughts on your beautiful book. Thank you. Oh, th no, I really appreciate this. It was really tremendous fun and and uh, big fan of the podcast and I have lots of friends who have done it and been on it and listened to it. And so it's just been a real humbling moment for me. Thanks so much, Mitzi. If you like today's show with Richard Deming, author of This Exquisite Loneliness, check out my interview with Hernan Diaz, Pulitzer Prize winning author of Trust. We talked about how all his books are about loneliness and what that means to him. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 420 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Buzzy Jackson, David James Duncan, and Tan Tuan Eng. 
I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft, a dialogue on writing, a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.